You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, like how in the heck did a gray whale end up in the Mediterranean off the coast of Israel? So not just around Spain, Morocco, in the opening of the Mediterranean Sea. From the what can they teach us? When they are doing their dives and rolling on their sides, which is darling, they disrupt these muddy ocean bottoms and they leave these feeding pits or these trails and plumes behind. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. That sounds like Morse code underwater. What was that? Well, we are in the oceans and we're celebrating all things oceans in July here at All Creatures Podcast. And so that is a gray whale vocalization, also known as a pulse, uh, the way that they communicate with with each other um, for miles and miles in the deep, dark oceans uh, while they're migrating, while they're looking for mates. So it's probably not maybe quite the whale song that people are familiar with, with the humpback whales, but. Really cool stuff from, from gray whales. And I just had to open with that because I thought it was really unique. Well, I just, I, it, when, when we talked about gray whales, I was like, okay, we've covered a lot of whale species. This one, it, every whale species we cover is pretty fantastic. But the gray whale story, their migration routes, their unique feeding style, how they went extinct off the Atlantic coast, probably due to hunting, maybe some other pressures. But this is this is a fun whale to study and learn about, and I was actually amazed about some of the things uh, that that we're going to talk about today. Yes, Chris, it was. I, I agree exactly. I was thinking, oh, another whale. What else is there to learn? But that's where I really dorked out, wanting to take a closer look at their vocalizations. Do they sing? Do they not sing? Uh, as you mentioned, their feeding behavior. But then also, the gray whale is a fan favorite. There's been a lot of social media videos popping up of tourists interacting, if you will, more or less with gray whales. Uh, the gray whales 
coming up and maybe wanting a barnacle scratched off or just, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but friendly behaviors. Uh, and so we'll talk a lot about ecotourism today too. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun podcast. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that's unique about the gray whale is this is the only whale to completely disappear from an entire ocean. Out of all the species we've covered, this is the only one that that's completely out of that ocean. But they've now been sighted back in the Atlantic and even the Mediterranean. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Like, how in the heck did a gray whale end up in the Mediterranean off the coast of Israel? So not just around Spain, Morocco, in the opening of the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic, but then you go all the way east. This whale was swimming in the Mediterranean. So just recently, too, in the, in the last couple of years, and there was one a few years before that. So we're going to talk about that and the, how that happened and why. So stay tuned. Incredible species. You want to know more about this whale. Trust me, uh, there's a lot going on with them, and you're going to learn a lot today about them, like we learned doing our research. Really quick before we get going, just a big shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. Don't forget, 25% of the funds raised are going to these conservation organizations. And this month with Plastic Free July, that's big for us. We always highlight and focus on our oceanic species as we try to make a difference. You know, the thousands of us around the world uh, making a difference to help our oceans stay clean and reduce our plastic consumption. So thank you for supporting that. And thank you for listening too. you know, to, to everybody else. Yeah, if you haven't already joined us, uh, check out plasticfree.ecochallenge.org and you can search for All Creatures Podcast and join our team. Also, if you go to any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, uh, there's instructions and uh, QR codes and exact and direct links to click on to immediately join our team. It's super fun. Uh, there's small little mini eco challenges that you can just do one time throughout the month of July or multiple ones that you can do throughout the week. Like I'm picking up trash each day wherever I go, whether I'm at a park or a beach uh, or even just walking around downtown. It's it's awesome. I get my kids involved and uh, we also watch a lot of educational videos and just get the conversation going of why we should bring our reusable bags or why we should try to buy fresh fruits from our local farm market that don't come in plastic, for instance. Plasticfree.ecochallenge.org is just a great way to explore, have some fun conversations with our team members, and help score us some points so I can finally beat my husband's team. I need to go in. Which will never happen. They're like stuff. number 12 out of like 300 <laughs> teams. We're at, we're at like number 48 right now. So we're, okay, okay. we're doing better than a lot of teams. But uh, so thank you to everyone who has joined uh, in years past and definitely this year as well. But it's just, it's a fun time and it makes me so much more conscientious. And I'm, I'm, Using my metal straw right now as we speak. Well, yeah, I need to go and update my my stats because I use my water bottles every day. I bring my own lunch uh, in my own containers every day. Use my own utensils, things like that. So I will definitely update and and help hopefully help hopefully get us past uh, up past forty eight. Yes, Chris, get us some points, please. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll, I'll I'll pick it up. Now, describe the. The gray whale, I'll, I'll just start off with size because when I thought of it, I thought, oh, you know, is it is it bigger than a humpback, but smaller than a blue whale? Where does it fit? Basically, it is similar to a humpback. 
as far as size, you know, it's uh, big, anywhere, like the size of a bus, yeah. right? Yeah. A little bit longer than a school bus, but yeah, it's, it's up to 50 feet or 15 meters long and up to 90,000 pounds or 40 tons. So you think humpback size, that's about the size of the gray whale, but they definitely look different. Oh yes. I mean, they're a gorgeous whale. Uh, they're dark gray in color or slate gray. And what really sets a gray whale off is that they have a lot of gray white patterns and scars, especially on their face, but throughout their whole body. And these scars or these marks are left uh, by parasites, barnacles, whale lice, and give their skin this rough, patchy appearance. And then when you look at their body shape, one of the biggest ways you can tell gray whales apart from humpback whales is that gray whales do not have a dorsal fin. Instead, they have this large bump or hump um, towards their, more towards their tail. And then after this bump, the gray whale has a series of about seven or 15 knobs or knuckles, they're called, small bumps, if you will, that decrease in size. And one of the other really striking features, too, with the gray whales is that they have smaller uh, paddle-shaped flippers compared to these large white flippers of the humpback whale. And then, of course, the gray whale is a baleen whale. And we're going to talk a lot about their baleen today, uh, which is how they feed. But what's really cool, too, is all baleen whales actually have two blowholes. So I think people always just draw them with one, like if you just look at a, mm -hmm. a cartoon. Mm -hmm. But it stands to be corrected today that no, no, there's actually two blowholes, which of course connect directly to the lungs. So that way that the gray whale, as they're feeding, and Chris is going to really dork out about that, but as they're feeding and intaking all this water, when they go up to the uh, surface for air, they just can use their blowhole uh, for air. So pretty cool. And then of course, gray whales are mammals. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about mammals is that they have hair, right? And so the gray whale is no different. They actually have vibrace or whiskers uh, on their upper mouth or upper nose rostrum area, which is used as a sensor for touch, especially when they're feeding uh, below the surface. And so it's really sensitive. So they do have whiskers, if you will. That's funny. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't think of it, but technically I, yeah. we usually, we, we always say mammals, right? They, they drink milk mm -hmm. and they have hair or fur. Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyways, I just, uh, I, I zoomed in on some and I'm like, yeah, wow, they really, they really do have it, uh, which is just makes them even more personable in my book. I didn't know that. I, I missed that fact on the hairs and that makes sense with their, with their feeding and how they feed. It, it reminds me of a walrus, you know, with their big whiskers. Yeah. And of course, too, whales are known for their tails as they dive down and when they do some of their signature play moves, which we'll talk about in behavior. But their caudal tail fin is huge, uh, as you can imagine, and it has uh, two wide gray flukes, uh, which are points that basically are separated by a big notch. So a, a, a classic yeah. whale tail, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, the, the gray whale range is the Pacific Ocean and up into the Arctic. Generally, not the entire Pacific, though. They're, they're not around really the equatorial range, but more the coasts of California and Mexico up into British Columbia or Canada, and then around Alaska. Now, there is a subpopulation in the Western Pacific Ocean, 
and they they are considered critically endangered. There's only about 200 known uh, that swim off the coast of Japan, Korea, China, and then they do go up off the coast of Siberia. But there's not a lot of exchange from the western to the eastern population. That eastern population, when we talk about their migration route, is usually off the coasts of Alaska and the Arctic, down the western coasts of North America into uh, Baja, California. So we're going to talk about that a little bit a little bit later. Now, like I said, they were in the Atlantic. That's crazy. How long ago? Okay. So in the Eastern Atlantic, so near Europe, they disappeared around the 1500s. Okay. So from off Africa, off the coast of England and Europe, they were thought to be hunted from early whalers. Now in the Western Atlantic, in the Americas, they disappeared in the 1800s. Now, there isn't a, it, it's not just, oh, did, did humans hunt them to extinction? Yes, a lot of scientists believe that had a definitely effect, but the population had been declining for thousands of years. So it wasn't like there was this robust population of gray whales in the Atlantic Ocean that were, were killed. Uh, there was just maybe a few thousand left that after some hunting and whaling from you know, humans in the, in the 1500s, the 1800s, that is where they disappeared. That left us with only the population of the Pacific. Now they're starting to reappear in the Atlantic and in the Mediterranean. So this first in 2010, a gray whale was spotted in the Mediterranean. This was the one that was all the way in the eastern part near off Israel. Angie, how? I'm going to ask you, how do you think this gray whale found itself in the Atlantic Ocean and then wandered into the Mediterranean. I mean, maybe they into the Mediterranean to feed. Uh, but how, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. The, they're such great, they do swim long distances. We're going to talk a lot about that. But I mean, if, was it, is there like a leftover population that's not been accounted for maybe no. in the Atlantic? Nope. nope. Then nope. it has to go down the tip of South America and around. That's what you would think, right? It doesn't. This one didn't cross cross the equator. It did not. But what's going on in in the Arctic? Oh, it's melting. Yeah, so it went uh, up and over. Mm-hmm. Yep, went through the this northwest passage. Oh, that, maybe it just got like turned around or something. Yeah, or, got lost or stuck uh, maybe or disoriented. Like, disoriented. Yeah, yeah. So they mm. they they believe that these these whales uh, that they're spotting are actually swimming north of Canada. This was the famous Northwest Passage that early explorers were trying to find, but there was all this sea ice and they couldn't get through it in northern Canada. Well, now because the sea ice is shrinking, these gray whales are getting a little bit lost. So in 2010, it was a young whale. I think that it was a male, about 26 foot long, and it was young, disoriented, starving, looking for food, because this goes into their story. And they think it ended up dying. Now, in 2021, another young gray whale was spotted off Spain, Morocco, and Italy. Again, another young whale that was disoriented and lost. And again, they think this one probably died. And they're, they're going to go through. I'm going to talk about this, this, this horrific event that happened in 2019 with gray whales. 
so reading about this a little bit and, and, and digging up like, why, how could they, that's what I thought. Like I thought, oh, well they had to swim. Do they swim around South America and just were really lost and, and whatnot. But then they said, no, they, they're pretty sure they went to the Arctic and they, because gray whales are known for one of the world's longest migrations. I mean, up to 20,000 kilometers or up to 10,000 miles. Yeah, Chris, I was reading that the gray whale migration is the longest annual migration of any mammal. So mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 10,000, 14,000 miles. Yeah. yeah. Round, round trip. Yeah. We know some whales migrate, but not that long, not that far. Yeah. Right. So that led me down to kind of looking at their their population numbers and, and you know, looking at how they disappeared from the Atlantic pre-whaling. So before humans got into boats and started like commercializing whaling, which we saw, you know, in the, in the 16, 17, 1800s, and then even into the 20th century, up into the 1970s, uh, Russia or Soviet Union at the time, uh, Japan was still whaling quite a bit. They still do whale some. And we know Iceland, I think Iceland's actually stopped there all their whaling now. But, you know, the, the estimates were about 120,000 gray whales. And they've done this through DNA studies, but the the gray whales were almost hunted to extinction in the 1940s. And then again, going into the, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when the Soviet Union was whaling a lot, Japan was whaling other countries. So the gray whales might have got down to about a thousand. But with conservation and with the end of whaling, the gray whales really started to rebound nicely. And in the Pacific, now they, did, they, they, they don't have any sustainable populations in the Atlantic, but in the Pacific, NOAA estimates there's about 27,000 gray whales in 2016. Yeah, so, it's like a hopeful story. Yes, they were doing great. Now they were doing great. But reverse the bus a little bit. Estimates in 2023 are about 15,000 gray whales, and you had this huge decline of nearly 40% in 40%. The, the yeah massive drop off. I didn't realize whales. it was that much. Yeah, so I started to go down this rabbit hole and go, okay, why? Why did we lose in a, in less than five years, roughly? Uh, what did we lose about 10,000, 12,000 whales? What happened? So there was a good article, Daniel Wolf, on gray whales are dying along the Pacific coast. And, and if you want to Google it, it has some great images in there and, and really good interviews from scientists talking about gray whales and why they're in crisis. This was published in 2022. And this was a, a popular press article, not a scientific one, but it does have the science in it. So it's, it's a very good read uh, by, it was on CNN uh, website. And they, they talk about, okay, so again, these gray whales are migrating from Baja, California, all the way up the west coast of North America into the Arctic. And in 2019, the gray whales had this unusual mortality event. So I, I bet you some of our listeners on the west coast of the U.S. or Canada probably remember some of this. Uh, in the news, there was a lot of gray whales washing up dead on beaches up and down the coast and and people are going what is going on whether you know is is the water what were they eating plastic what was it what was killing these whales 
Uh, they found about 500 stranded gray whales, but scientists estimate that was just a fraction of the thousands that died and sank beneath the ocean. And what happened, and I'm going to talk about it, but all the evidence pointed is it's due to the warming and this rapidly changing Arctic Ocean as the culprit. That is what basically was uh, leading to the deaths of these whales. So scientists that that were tracking the gray whales and were, were out looking at them said many of them were emaciated. That, yeah, that means they're starving. They're not eating. A lot of the ones that washed up on the beach had been starving, so they, they died of starvation. A few died of boat strikes, which is always a big problem. And they did notice some gray whales going into San Francisco Bay looking for food. Wow. And they would get hit yeah. by ships you know, mm-hmm. coming in and out of the bay. Uh, so to understand that, so what, and this jumps ahead a little bit to their diet and nutrition. But in this migration, and, and humpbacks do it, and other whale species that migrate do it, these whales migrate south to the calving grounds in Baja. So warm waters, mom is is eating hopefully enough in the Arctic, it gets, gets nice, fat, and happy, makes a long migratory route down into Baja, California. She has her calf, waits till her calf is, is, is old enough, and maybe Angel will talk a little bit more of this when she gets to reproduction, and then they migrate back to the feeding grounds because mom lost all that weight, the calf's still nursing, so she needs to, to you know, get her reserves and show Junior how to eat. And in the Northern Seas, you have these really nutritious, dense energy, a lot of fat, very good small crustaceans that these gray whales eat, and they're disappearing. So their food source is disappearing. And this has led to dramatic drops in calf counts. So in these years, in 2018, 19, and 20, in one year, the scientists said they they measured they counted 104 calves. The next year, there was only 37 making uh, the migration north, and they're starting to see gray whales turn around and migrate back earlier because there's no. Oh, wow, sure. So, you know, why is this happening? Why is our food source disappearing? Well, it's interesting because when you look at their feeding strategy, which I'm going to get here in a second, but we're seeing, and we've talked about this with narwhals and and other belugas and other whale species or Arctic species, the Arctic sea ice is disappearing. It's getting smaller and smaller every year. And if you look at data from multiple organizations around the earth that measures this, normally when we started measuring in the early 80s, the Arctic sea ice would be over 16,000 million square kilometers, which is like over 6 million square miles of ice. Well, every year that's getting less and less, where recent years it's 14,000 square kilometers or just over 5 million square miles of sea ice. So you've lost a million square miles of sea ice every year or, you know, millions of square kilometers every year. And it's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So you see some gray whales 
swimming through that Northwest Passage, getting stuck or lost in the Atlantic. Well, in a quick sidebar, Chris, the world's recorded the hottest days ever three times this week in July already. So I believe July 3rd uh, was the world's hottest day ever, and then it just keeps continuing. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it's it's if, yeah if we're that's having tough not weather. a red flag. I I don't know what is. And we're definitely having a mild winter here in New Zealand. You know, different podcast for a different yeah. day, but I hope uh, yeah people pay attention. Okay, so you have shrinking sea ice. Now to jump ahead real quick, gray whales, how they feed. This is a a, a baleen whale, but they're bottom feeders. Right. I have a picture of it, Chris. I found a cartoon. Okay. Uh, you you describe it. So it. Let me catch my breath. <laughs> you describe how they feed, and then that then I'll get into why that food source is disappearing. Thank you for giving me the microphone. I'm super excited to talk about gray whales and how they feed because they're the only large cetacean or whale that are known primarily as bottom feeders. So gray whales will feed in shallow water with muddy or sandy bottoms or in kelp beds and they basically will dive to the ocean floor and they fill their mouth with a large volume of sediment and water and what they do is while they're feeding and trolling i guess the bottom of the ocean if you will uh they roll on their sides swimming slowly bringing in the water and the sediment into their mouths, into the baleen, which remember hangs from the top of their mouth like long keratin curtains that are anywhere from like eight inches, uh, 10, 11 inches long, and uh, anywhere from 130 to 180 of these curtain like plates. So they're like plates. So the water and the sediment passes through this baleen, acting as a filter as they're just skimming the floor turned on their side, which that's when I really fell in love with them, Chris, because it's just so unique compared to Mm -hmm. humpbacks or any of the other, any of the other baleen whales. And Mm. anyways, they're just, they just keep on, they're on their side on the bottom and they're just filtering food, looking for the crustaceans and mussels and just other creatures. uh, And they just keep filtering water and sediment through while they're on their sides looking for, Sea creatures, ghost shrimp, worms, um, small fish, fish eggs, larvae, all sorts of different things. Uh, And it's just a really unique behavior. And when they are doing this, they leave behind really cool feeding pits uh, behind them on the seafloor, which I'll bring up again when we get when we get to why I care about gray whales Mm. and whales in general. So just super unique, and uh, the diagram that I found is just super cute because it shows them like diving down, starting mm-hmm. to scoop, and then they turn on their side, and then they ride along on their side, continuing to filter the food out until they probably need to go back up and get some air. Yeah, and the um, oh, and it should be noted too the gray whales have a lot of different names. Uh, sometimes they're known as devilfish. I'll talk about that for their aggressive behavior uh, with whalers but they're also known as muscle diggers because mm-hmm. of this very, very unique feeding behavior. So cool. I would, I would love to see this on film somewhere, but I, I couldn't find it anywhere. I don't, I don't know if you came across it. No, they, they do have some images of like the, the sediment, uh, at the, the top. clouds like, of sediment. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The clouds of sediment at the top. And that's how they kind of count them. And 
and how many are eating and whatnot. But all right, so there you go. You have this whale scooping up sediment from the bottom of the ocean where all of its food is. Like the, these benthic amphipods is is what they Oh, see, I was just up. like worms and shrimp. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I mean, that's what, well, that's what <laughs> the scientists say, right? So they, they say they call them, I mean, and and the the non-science word was like really In fat case people bugs. are wondering if I was a whale scientist, now they know that I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm getting from the article. I'm not... <laughs> Really fat sea bugs. Okay, so that's highly nutritious food. And that inhibit that sediment. Okay, so what's going on? You need sea ice to cover the seafloor because these sea bugs tolerate the cold water really well, but not warm water. Okay, so the, the, the sea ice protects them. It also slows down sea currents so sediment can settle at the bottom where these bugs live and carve out little holes and find safety down there, right? So the sea ice is kind of keeping everything calm. No, not the currents are low, you know, you you get more sediment and perfect. Now, as the sea ice recedes, algae comes in because of the sun and blooms and feeds these sea bugs, right? But it's cyclical. You need that, that ice to, to provide the home. And then when the ice pulls away, the sea bugs eat and, and make more baby bugs. And then here come the whales right at the right time. Boom, eats. And then they swim off for the winter to go have babies while the sea ice comes back. These bugs repopulate, refine their homes. Sea ice leaves. They get some food. Whales come in. Now, when you take all of that away, where there is no sea ice, where these whales eat and these bugs live, it starts changing the ecosystem and that is what's going on. So there's more algae produced per year. The water's warmer, so it attracts more fish. We're seeing tropical fish higher in latitudes than we've ever seen before because seas are getting warmer. So you're getting more krill, more plankton. So you're getting this... On one hand, you're getting this more thriving ecosystem for other organisms, but not the ones that the gray whales eat, right? So these gray whales go up to the Arctic and they are not finding their food. That's why they're starving, because it's not there where they typically go. Basically, it's going from this bottom-rich benthic system into this warmer uh, pelagic one where you know blue whales are doing fine i mean you have if we go back to our humpback whale episode and talk about their different hunting strategies bubble nets all these wonderful things they do gray whales don't know how to do that right they've learned to scoop this stuff this stuff off the 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 bottom rich ecosystem that's their niche right so that is why they're starving and that's why they're they're dying and and their populations crashing some good news, okay, there's always got to end with good news, is these whales are survivors. And their their scientific name is Estrictus robustus. And they're robust, <laughs> they're survivors, they're hardy. There is a po- small population of gray whales now that just stay around Vancouver Island off British Columbia. They're known as the Sounders because they live year-round in the Puget Sound. Used to live up that way a long time ago. And they're on a diet of herring and krill. 
So they've learned to adapt. Yes, yes, Chris. I was reading about certain groups of gray whales have become a little bit more opportunistic feeders and will use feeding strategies where they will hunt small fish during their southern mm -hmm. migration. And researchers have identified a little bit of cooperative, I don't know if hunting is the right word, mm -hmm. but basically uh, during a gray whale feeding episode, three or four whales uh, will corral a school of fish and a single whale gets to swim through the school with its mouth open. Mm -hmm. And once it emerges out of the school, a fish, it'll hang out for a few minutes. And once the whale heads out of the school fish, it will come up with its head up and hang out like that for a minute. I, they didn't really explain why. I don't know if it was to digest, get the fish down its gullet. I don't know. But what was really fascinating is they each take turns being the whale that gets to go through the center of the schooled fish and mm -hmm. get more of them. So I yeah. thought that was really, yeah. uh, shows their intelligence and their flexibility. Uh, but yes, that's not how they evolved to hunt or eat. Yeah. Well, I, I think we should take take a break real quick. But I know, Angie, you've got some things on why I care about these whales. And then I can jump into a little bit of their evolutionary history because there's really some good evidence that these whales are survivors that they one scientist said they have a lot more evolutionary plasticity than anyone imagined and what that means is flexibility in in adapting to climate change and you know warm cold oceans things like that so there is evidence that that these guys are survivors and, and we'll get Did to they that. live up to their name robustus right yes <laughs> so we'll be right back hey there fellow super moms this is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets, finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver, Factor. Picture this, delicious chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly, too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout. Because Factor Meals are dietitian approved and cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor. Because every super mom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to factormeals.com slash creatures50 and use code creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code creatures50 at factormeals.com slash creatures50 to get 50% off. Spring? 
Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome back. So, Angie, why do you care about gray whales? Oh, well, I watched a lot of videos of tourists interacting with them, so that's on my bucket list. Um, but, yeah, wow, their feeding strategy is amazing and really unique. So I want to learn more about that, and I think you should care about them because of that. Uh, with gray whales being primarily bottom feeders, when they are doing their dives and rolling on their sides, which is darling, uh, mm -hmm. They disrupt these muddy ocean bottoms and they leave these feeding pits or these trails and plumes behind. And then that actually creates another ecosystem for these small organisms. So it's their ecosystem engineers in some ways, shapes and forms, and they help. Obviously, they're eating a lot of sea, you know, small sea creatures when they're down there, but they're also creating habitats for others. And so... I have to wonder without them down there or as many of them down there doing these dives, creating these feeding pits and or these ecosystems for other creatures, how will that affect those other creatures, right? Will they be left behind and then also become, become extinct? And then during these feeding events, a lot of the plume, as Chris mentioned, this sediment, sandy cloud stuff will actually mm -hmm. travel towards the top of the water. And that's how researchers can take some of their data about how often they're feeding and where they're feeding because they can see this muddy plume come up from the water. Well, birds are super smart and they follow them around and catch and eat little tidbits of treasures that are mm -hmm. kicked up to the top. Like These are bottom treasures, right? These benthic creatures Chris was talking about. Mm -hmm. Super yummy, nutrition, highly nutritious, uh, nutritiously dense food kicked up to the surface. So birds like northern fumars, red phallothropes, mm. and black-legged kittiwakes, and thick-billed murres. I think I messed up most of those bird names. So to all my bird nerds out there, I totally apologize. <laughs> oh, I have never, I've never heard of a um, a kittiwake, but that's what this podcast yeah. or a red phallrope, phallrope, p h a l a r o p e s. But that's why we do this podcast. Uh, we learn every day. But anyways, these seabirds will feast on these treasures from the mud. And so mm -hmm. without the gray whales kicking this up, the birds are going to lose some food as well. And they probably yeah. honestly already have because mm -hmm. the, gray whale, the gray whales numbers are down. So ecosystem engineer, and they definitely f create habitats for small creatures and they feed the birds as well. 
And gray whales, of course, are iconic for their barnacles and their parasites and whale lice on them that really set them apart with all their kind of white lumps and bumps and stuff on their face. But they are hosts for several of these creatures uh, that should not be left behind. And so I do like that they create a home for those. And then when we look at just whales in general, Chris and I have talked about this before on a few of our other whale podcasts. I don't know if you want to give them a shout out here. Well, we've done a few, and that's I'm gonna, when I talk about evolution and the number of species of whales, we're kind of running out, the big ones. Uh, we, we did re-release orcas, just two incredible episode 327. We did humpbacks 275. That was April of last year. Uh, we did uh, blue whales, and we re- did that one on episode 306. And we did Pilot Whales, episode 219, back in 2021. Belugas, episode 192 in 2020. Then we did Sperm Whales in 2020. That was an old one, 172, episode 172. And then we did Narwhals, episode 64. That was back in 2018. Yeah, that was pretty old. And then I forgot episode 133, Bowhead Whales. So I think that covers all of them. And, you know, I got a few more whales to do, but we've done a lot of the big ones. But this one, yeah, I just, I was blown away by gray whales. Just really. It was, yeah, they're just so cool with all their different behaviors and the way they feed. Uh, But in general, talking about oceans and why we should care about whales, all whales, because a lot of the whale populations are in big trouble because of humans and climate change, et cetera. Uh, But you guys know me, I love poop. And so whales, as you can imagine, being the size of a bus, uh, they have a lot of poop. And Mm -hmm, whale poop mm -hmm. is actually really, really awesome for, for food, for marine ecosystems. It brings a lot of nitrogen and other nutrients to the ocean surface. Uh, in a process called the whale pump. So these nutrients from whale poop support phytoplankton growth. And of course, phytoplankton, especially if you're a ba- baleen whale uh, and uh, tons of other sea creatures, that provides like the main food that they eat. So the more whales poop, the healthier the oceans are, nitrogen, uh, and this whale pump mm-hmm. can help produce phytoplankton and just keep the circle of life happy in the ocean. So without whales and without their poop, the phytoplankton are gonna, not going to have as much nutri- nutrients available. So mm-hmm. that's just in general why you should care about whales. And maybe you don't like poop as much as me, but I do. And it's so cool that it's used basically as a fertilizer of the oceans. And the last point I want to make about whales and why you should care about them, uh, even if you don't think they're cute or you don't love their poop, Whales are a big money maker. They are worth a lot more money alive than they are dead or especially extinct. Okay. Ecotourism and whale watching are huge components of local economies. Whale watching and coastal tourism generates billions of dollars. So back in 2012, this is one of the best statistics I could find. The whale watching industry just whales. I'm not talking about birds or uh, going to, on a cruise to Alaska. Just going out for like four hours to look at whales generated 2 
billion dollars mm-hmm. and supported over 13,000 jobs worldwide. So that's not just, this is of course not just gray whales, but whales in general. So well, worldwide, it. it's a big deal here in the United States, both on the Eastern coast um, and on the Western coast as well, but it's popular in a lot of other places as well. So in 2020, uh, it, uh, just off the coast of uh, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, uh, where my husband was born and where we love to go visit sometimes. In 2020, it was reported that whale watching generated $76 million uh, in labor income and $182 million in sales just to that region, just for one sanctuary where people go watch, uh, mm-hmm. watch whales. And my husband keeps telling me that we can't do it. So... <laughs> Well, that was, I mean, and, and that well, was he's waiting. He's waiting for the kids to get older. He's waiting okay. for the kids well, to get older. And I'm like, what about this kid? Like, I'm old. I'm an old yeah. big kid. Like, I want to go now. Leave the kids with grandma. Like, no, let's no. just you and I go. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But that was in 2020 when COVID was raging, right? Yeah. So it's, it's even more than than that. Sure. Yeah. And sure. we have it. It's a big deal here in New Zealand. I, I, I need to go see a blue whale. Like, that's my goal. And Jesse used to work on... Uh, dolphin boats to go out and look at dolphins and stuff as, as yeah, tourism absolutely and then when we look at just gray whales regionally in oregon 29.8 million and over mm-hmm. uh 600,000 visitors to the or just to oregon yeah. coast off the united states western coast yeah. uh yeah. and then if we switch to like orcas the southern resident killer whales uh in san juan county washington 12 million in state revenue in 1800 jobs I'm um, gutted. I never saw them when I lived up there. Like I just, oh, yeah. I wanted to see killer whales in the wild. Oh. They're off here though, off in New Zealand. So I'm always looking. Well, for there's them, still time. Uh, there's yeah. still time. So, yeah, well, I, I uh, mean, we'll work oh, on John. Get you on a whale boat. Yeah. Yes, I know he's so cute. He, we do want to bring the kids, and that's what we're waiting for. And then, and we're also always visiting family when we're in Boston. So there's not a ton of, uh, I guess, free yeah. time. But uh, yeah. yeah, so the people. Love it, um, I'm told, because I've never been. I have seen the humpback migration off the coast, yeah. the western coast of Hawaii, mm-hmm. from my ho- mm-hmm. from my hotel room. I wasn't even on a boat. They're so close <laughs> that yeah. we could just sit and drink our coffee. It was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. so it's it's it, it. They generate a lot of money. They generate a lot of jobs. A lot of interest. A lot of public mm-hmm. draw. Of in this, I'm speaking of gray whales, and but a lot of other whale species in general, and so. It, they they are really more important alive than they are dead. Uh, obviously, you can't poach them here in the United States or mm-hmm. really, I mean, anywhere internationally now. So mm-hmm. that's good. But now we have to protect them from other enemies like climate change and pollution and some of these other other things that are are making their numbers dwindle. So that's yeah. why you should care and take care of them so that someday when your children are old enough and your husband uh, is ready to pay for it. Just yes. <laughs> that, that you can go out on a boat and see some of these creatures yes, yeah. and just be blown away by their massive size mm. um, and their interactions and their behaviors and their songs. And uh, yeah, they're just, they're just such cool creatures. Yeah. yeah. I need to get more people excited about whales. Jumping into evolution, I'll try to do that. So what always amazes me is not only are the pinnipeds part of carnivoria, right? Carnivores. Uh, their yeah, ancient right? relatives are related to felids and canids, right? Wolves and, mm-hmm. and lions and all that. Whales order is Artiodactyla, which is part of Angie's favorites. 
My even toed ungulate yes, skills. And yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Giraffe and all of that talking right talking, talking. what you talking yeah, about yes yeah, yeah yeah what you talking about talking uh, so order the related long you know along those lines infra order cetacea or cetacea so this is your whales dolphins and porpoises and again only 90 species so we've covered quite a bit of those so far now when you break the whales down you obviously have the toothed whales which is your sperm whales your orcas your porpoises, your dolphins, and then you have your baleen whales, which we have the right whales, the pygmy white right whales, the rorquals, which includes your your rorquals are your blue whales, your birds whales, which we haven't done. We have to do, I know one of the whales I want to do is those, the really, really deep diving ones, but the minky whales. And then, you know, the gray whales and humpback whales are very close relatives to that. So baleen whales. Now, specifically with gray whales, the family is Estridatus, and then obviously Estridatus robustus. We've already talked about that. So no subspecies, but again, they do have that Western Pacific population uh, that is out there with, with them. And then the closest relatives to gray whales uh, the fin whales and humpback whales are closely related. Blue whales and sea whales, that's the other very large whale in the ocean. Not quite as big as blue whales, but they're up there. Uh, and then the gray whale is is more rela- closely related to fin whales and humpbacks, but they're kind of on their own in, in there. Because when you look at their evolution, they've been around for about two and a half million years. Uh, whales, earliest relatives, started on land 56 million years ago. The closest mammal rep you know, relative outside of the oceans, hippos, but hippos only date back 15 million years. So, you know, their, their relatives go way back. Uh, but around 49 million years ago, the artiodactyls started going in the water and kind of did a half on land, half in water, and then eventually just stayed in the water. That all happened around India and Pakistan, which is always interesting with whales. Love it. Now with the gray whales, we do have fossil evidence. It's like I said, two and a half million years ago. So we're from two and a half, three million years ago is when gray whales emerged. Now talking about them being survivors, this is, this is very interesting because, you know, we just know studying climate, it's gone up and down. We know there's, there's, there's ice ages and then warming and back and forth. There is a natural, not human driven climate cycle. The problem is the climate cycle is out of whack because of carbon emissions and the earth is warming quicker than normal than in the past. So in many of our species we've talked about, do they have time to adapt before they die out? So it's it's a race against the clock and, and they're, they're measuring this in, in trees and other species other outside of animals. So looking at the gray whale, Looking at their genetics, what's interesting, Angie, is th- these whales don't do not show any signs of a bottleneck. So, I guess oh, that's the, the good. one, yeah, the one thing that I went back to is the cheetah. Mm-hmm. Right, there used to be the American cheetah, the African cheetah. Cheetahs are known to have a, have had a genetic bottleneck. They almost went extinct at the end of the last ice age. There was an India. They're reintroducing them in India now. 
so they have a genetic bottleneck and you can look through time looking at the, the, the robustness of the genetics of a species. So what scientists have said is because they, they know during the Ice Age, those feeding grounds weren't there for the gray whales, they've had to have different feeding strategies mm-hmm. to survive these cooling and warming trends. So like they said, they're highly adaptable. So during the changes in the Earth's climate, gray whales have been able to adapt to the changes. And there's a whole study on it, and, I, and we're running out of time. I don't have time to, to dig into it. But they were just saying, like, you know, during uh, the Ice Age, their population was probably still robust, and they were just feeding on different things. And, you know, they don't, they don't show any signs of being down to a few thousand whales. They've always been tens of thousands of gray whales because they they have that much genetic diversity. So scientists believe if any whale species is going to really survive well through this change, gray whales may be one of them because they're one of the more ancient whales out there that have survived a lot in their, their history. So even though we've seen this huge drop-off and are struggling right now, hopefully like this sounder population that's found a way to survive and find alternate food sources, hopefully other gray whales can take that up so they can survive through this this rapid changing climate. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hope for them. And that's another reason on why to care. Like they're a survivor. They've made it this far. Uh, let's 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 yeah. keep them going, right? Uh, not, I mean, some of the facts, uh, they can live up to 80 years in the wild. Uh, some of the, the, the data on mortality, most of them pass away as calves in the winter feeding grounds, 91% yeah. of all deaths of gray whales. Now this was before the, the big, um, downturn a few years ago, because now you're seeing lots of adults die where you have, uh, yearlings again are very uh, susceptible to dying and then only about 5% of adults die per year but again that's changing because of this this alteration in malnutrition mm-hmm. yeah 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 now it, in big beast which uh, if you heard that interview a few weeks back gray whale is their first episode so i've i've gone back and watched that again and there is a sequence in there that's very interesting angie do you, I don't, you remember it but the gray whales mom and calf were hiding in the kelp beds as there was a pot of orcas off the coast looking to hunt because in nearly almost 20% of all gray whales show some sort of evidence of being attacked by orcas or hunted with usually the younger ones are more vulnerable, but sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those orcas, I love them, but geez, they're vicious. <laughs> yeah, they are smart yeah. and tough. That is for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the International Whaling Commission does allow 140 gray whales per year to be hunted by indigenous people. So there are some losses there, but nothing like the, the, mass, ca- the, the mass event that they had where thousands died uh, within a couple of years because it just, yeah, it was, it was really tough. Angie, I didn't take a deep dive on, on physiology, which I hope you did. And, and that was pun intended. Oh, uh, Any statistics on that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, how can you not when you're talking about such a massive creature? And I think we do this on every whale episode because it is so fun. But I mean, to start with, gray whales, um, although they are known as more of a shallow feeding 
whale, but they can dive up to 120 meters or 395 feet. So that's a fair amount. Uh, And they have several adaptations to be able to help them with their dives. For instance, the gray whale's ribs are more flexible. Unlike like us humans, ours are very hard. And if you bend one the wrong way, it will break. The gray whale's ribs are flexible so that when they do dive, uh, the pressure won't, the, the ribs are flexible and they can move with, with whatever pressure is being placed along on the whale um, and not break or collapse. And they do spend a lot of time in cold waters feeding for hours and hours a day. And so in order to deal with the cold, uh, the gray whale has about 10 inches of blubber uh, that mm. acts as insulation but then also can act as energy stores for when uh, they are migrating or if they're pregnant and or nursing. So their blubber is very, very important for them. But then also to help keep them warm, especially when they're feeding for hours on end down in the cold water of the Arctic. Uh, it's really cool, Chris. The tongue of the gray whale has arteries and veins that provide countercurrent heat exchange oh, wow. uh, to their tongue and then thus into their mouth region to help keep that area warm and from freezing while they're spending all this time in the cold water looking for food. So I thought that huh. was, yeah, pretty interesting. And then when yeah, they yeah, do, yeah. yeah. And then when the gray whale does do some of the deeper dives and once again has to deal with this pressure, uh, Their eyes, which I didn't really mention in the description, but the whale eyes are gorgeous. I hope I get to look into one one day from a safe boat position where I'm not touching it, but looking at Mm -hmm. it. Uh, But it's really interesting. The eyes of a gray whale are about seven feet from the tip of their mouth or nose, depending on what what you want to call it. And they're small, but the eyes have evolved over time for diving in the cold weather. Uh, because they're suitable for low light. And during these deep dives, the white part of the eye is really thick and flexible. So it doesn't burst under all the pressure from diving. And Mm. then once again, I've never been up close to a whale or let alone their eye, but the gray whale has special muscles around their eye. So the whale can bend the eye up and see the water above or bend the eye down and see below them. So I thought that was pretty mm. cool. So they definitely are, uh, they know what's going on, that's for sure. So several different adaptations to help help them survive, as Chris mentioned, for millennia um, and stay flexible uh, for the different types of food that they need to eat. Well, and one thing I, I to, just to know, I was saying, while you're talking about that, I'm like, we should be sending this podcast to whale boats. Listen to this episode before you go out there, because, you know, for those on the West Coast of the United States and Canada or down in Mexico, It'd be so cool to listen to this and then go out and see these gray whales. Yes. Their migration. Yeah. So their migration in the spring is January to June. So that's when they're coming down from the north, going down to their mating grounds and birthing grounds, you know, on Baja, California, which I've been to, you know, grew up there, Southern California and down to Baja. Nice warm waters, beautiful, uh, beautiful part of the world. The fall migration is October to February. So May to October is when they're, they're generally, when they're in the summer feeding grounds off Alaska. 
you know, right in the Arctic and in the Baltic Sea. So that's when it's nice and warm. That's when they're eat well warmer, and mm-hmm. the ice has has regressed. So you get that algae; those organisms are munching, have a good good time, and the gray whales are are there when when they can get at them. And then once it starts getting cold again, it starts to ice up. They go back down and race down to Baja. So that's when you can see them most of the year, you know, off California. I remember as a kid doing whale boats off California. Don't know if we saw gray whales or humpbacks, but definitely saw some whales in the day. But definitely need to get back out there and see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's just it's so incredible uh, of what people are getting to experience when they're watching the whales during this migration. And gray whales, like I said, I don't want to say that they're friendly or uh, I don't want to promote touching wildlife or getting too close or mm-hmm. anything like that. However, the gray whale, I mean, has been reported on several occasions to come within an arm's length of many whale watching boats and just mm-hmm. hanging out. And because they are mammals and they breathe air, uh, the gray whales have predictable, regular predictable breathing patterns. Uh, and they'll exit three to five times from their blowhole about 15 to 30 seconds apart. So they're up for a little while, or you know when they're going to come up, what area they might come up in. And it, it, should, be, it should be noted, though, that the gray whale can stay submerged uh, for about 15 minutes when needed. So uh, they can stay under. As far as ecotourism goes, I think that if you are wanting to go out to really see any type of a whale wherever you wherever you are um, or wherever you get get the chance to go. I highly recommend that you're supporting these local uh, these local operators. You're support, supporting whale protection. But I guess my only caveat would be is make sure you're doing it with a um, a licensed operator. It's an educational tour uh, that they're not uh, bothering wildlife too much or exploiting them. For the most mm-hmm. part, but mm-hmm. uh, whenever I when I got to swim with the mantis, basically that's what we were, only a few um, few boats are allowed to go each day onto the water, and then it's yeah you can't touch them. Like if they come towards you, that's fine. So as long as you're with a respectable tour guide and respecting uh, the the creatures themselves, I think if they want to come up, if the whale wants to take a breath, ten feet, five feet from your boat. That, they're smart creatures, right? They're mm-hmm. choosing to do that. Uh, so, and if that's the case, send me a video <laughs> or a photo. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but yeah, so just be smart with how you do it. And we and we don't want to exploit these creatures and we definitely don't want them to get too used to humans because obviously not all humans are uh, have their best interests in mind. But um, some other behaviors that you'll see when you are uh, watching gray whales is this really cool whale behavior called spy hopping. And so what the gray whale will do is they lift their head out of the water and they only expose their rostrum. So that's like their nose mouth area. Uh, and only that sticks out of the water, but for like several minutes. And basically what they're doing is their eyes will be out of the water and they're looking around. So uh, they're looking for other whales. Maybe they're looking for a boat. I don't know. But yeah, just the just their seven feet of their their nose and mouth is out of the water straight, straight up. And then, of course, just like the iconic humpback whales, gray whales will breach. And what that means is they'll swim pretty fast, jump up into the air with their whole body out of the water. Sometimes they'll rotate to the left to the right. 
and they'll splash down on their side or their back, making a huge wave, a loud sound. Uh, and it's super impressive. I've seen it from probably 300 yards offshore with the humpback migration uh, when I was on the western coast of Hawaii. But uh, so impressive, even from a great distance. I couldn't imagine being up close to a gray whale or a humpback whale, whale breaching. In fact, I wouldn't want to be too close. <laughs> they make a big wave and it's a pretty yep. big splash. So you don't want to be too close. But that behavior can be seen as well. And researchers think that the breaching behavior is a form of uh, communication to other whales, but then, and it also might help them remove some of those skin parasites and barnacles and things mm -hmm. like that. And, and or uh, it could be a form of play because they know they're big, they know they make a big splash, and it might be the way what they do when they're happy and they want to play. So definitely, I highly encourage uh, everyone to go watch whales sometime in their life if you get the opportunity. Yeah, please do, please do. And in regards to social behavior, I talked a little bit about that uh, feeding behavior, uh, the unique fe feeding behavior of schooling fish that's been documented. But in general, gray whales are frequently found traveling alone or in small, unstable groups. So much different than orcas, for example. Uh, and in general, researchers don't think there's any really lo like long term bonds form between individuals except of course a mom and her calf uh mm -hmm. for uh, once it's you know once it's born till it's weaned now you talked about vocalizations and i know uh, we really dorked out on on how whales do it with sperm whales because i know supposedly if a sperm whale vocalizes and you're next to them they could kill you because it's so strong so but it was interesting it was different than like humpback whale song so how do they is that their normal communication yeah, so the gray whales um, produce very distinct calls, and there are these low-frequency calls that are pulsing in nature. Mm -hmm. And initially, the literature said that there was only like six distinct calls. But I found an article uh, from 2018 that actually reported a couple new new calls. So now I think gray whales have been documented to do between like 10 and 12 specific calls and it is much different than the whale songs right the moaning of we've all heard the whale the humpback whale songs that um are just you know classic i sleep to them sometimes because it's just beautiful music uh so far nothing like those humpback songs and to some extent blue whales uh yeah. do it as well um are different than what we what has been reported so far in gray whales um, because these songs, the humpbacks can sing, what we do know about them is that they're considered like the most complex non-human form of communication by any animal in the animal kingdom. Uh, and they're considered whale songs because they have predictable melodic tones and the notes repeat over and over again, like a chorus. So researchers, of course, are studying those and listening to those. And for the gray whales, their vocalizations don't get as much, I guess, fanfare because they don't have those haunt, haunting melodies. It was more, I don't want to say a click because a click is more what we think about when we talk about uh, dolphin communication mm -hmm. and maybe even sperm whale. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But uh, this is more of like a pulse, kind of a low frequency call. 
But the good news is researchers are continuing to study it. I think hopefully if more money is put into researching gray whales, we will learn more about their communication and, and, and learn about the complexities of it and identify more than just about the 10 or 12 different classifications of calls that have been documented. Uh, and that's my hope because it seems like every time they study them, they find new types of calls. But there was a really fascinating study about gray whales and their calls and basically like noise pollution and predators. And I thought it was a really insightful study because what it was done by like NOAA and it was done a while ago, uh, but they did a really good job basically testing gray whales with different types of things that they don't like. So like ocean uh, noise pollution and killer whale vocalizations. And what they found is when the gray whales did have like noise pollution, they basically like completely changed their their own communication behavior and their own calls to one another to find each other for breeding and things like that and for mm -hmm. migration. They just like stopped calling. They mm -hmm. kept really quiet. So and these noises that the researchers were playing were like oil drilling and stuff like that. So the whales just were like they hunkered down and just kept really quiet. Well, that potentially could be a really bad problem because they do need each other. They need to find each other to mate. Uh, and sometimes if they are traveling together or are feeding together, they, they, need, they need to know where the other one is. And if they're not making these pulse calls to communicate with one another, then that could be really problematic. So researchers are looking at how their behavior is being altered with a lot of the changes to our ocean. Uh, but so far, it's, um, it's seeming like it could be problematic for them. I mean, they're obviously very flexible with how they feed, and they are a survivor, and they are robustest. But in the same instance, uh, if our oceans are too loud and with too much, I guess, noise pollution, that could be very problematic for them. Yeah, so it is. That was, that was definitely, yeah. Yeah, something to keep our, our eyes on, that's for sure. But I, I you know, I, I appreciate that there are researchers out there. And there was a fair amount of data on gray whales, which always makes me happy when I see that when I go into like a PubMed or a Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in, studied. In 2018, there was also a really cool study, um, just briefly talking about ecotourism and their behavior. Sullivan and colleagues looked along the Oregon coast and just took a whole bunch of behavioral data as far as vessel disturbance to gray whales and just basically found in general vessel traffic that's pretty common in the area of Oregon where it was studied does not seem to really alter the behavior in any way. And so that made them very hopeful that um, the ecotourism that has been being done in the region is not threatening to change their behaviors or harm them in, in any way. So, yeah, I thought that I'm like, like they were looking at that too, right? Like you and I were numbers people. So it's one thing just to say yep. like, oh, the whales don't seem to be bothered by ecotourism. They like it. They want us to scratch their barnacles off. <laughs> but when there's actually data like over the course of, uh, let's see, these guys monitored two sites along the Oregon coast um, for over four weeks of traffic and interactions. Uh, they use modeling, all sorts of stuff. So 
yeah, I mean, that to me, that makes me, that sits a little bit more comfortably with that area is doing really good with their whale ecotourism. Now, this long migration is obviously to have them to, to, to give birth and mm-hmm. to mate. So what do we know about it? Yeah, so in general, gray males can mate throughout the year. However, um, most breeding occurs during the fall migration. And during this time, the male gray whale will experience an increase in uh, size of his testes. And this will also happen around the time that the female gray whale is in estrus. Uh, During breeding season, which once again is typically in late November to early December for this uh, eastern population, female will be seen courting several males and um, and breeding with several different males. And once the female gray whale becomes pregnant, uh, she gestates for about 13 to 14 months and she'll give birth to a single calf. Uh, a gray whale calf weighs, do you want to take a guess? A few hundred, uh, what, 400 pounds? Uh, 500 to 600 kilograms at birth. I'm just like doing the math triple? in my head, but yeah, yeah. Uh, about 1,000 yeah. to 1,200 pounds. Oh, God, that's, that's a birth. big baby. It's <laughs> a big mm-hmm. baby. And guess how yeah. long they are. This is a fun game, Chris. Oh, gosh. Okay. If mom's 50 feet, there's eight feet? Uh, four feet? meters, so 12, 12 feet. 12 feet? Jeez. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yes. That's so massive. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the gray whale calves are born tail first, and the mama cow will often hold the newborn calves up to the surface at first to help them breathe. And typically, the eastern gray whale calves are born the following year in January in the warm coastal waters, Baja, California. Mm. Uh, So that's cool if you're out there uh, uh, doing some whale watching there. And yeah, and then the uh, gray whale calf will nurse for about six to seven months. And I love it. So one of their nicknames uh, for the gray whales is devil fish. And this is due to the devil moms or tiger moms, if you will that are super protective and great parents at defending their young, especially against those darn orcas. We love them, but you know. And then Mm -hmm. back in the day, they got this name, the devilfish, from human whalers because there's historical accounts of whalers who tried to basically exploit calving season um, in these calving lagoons, and the moms would just would fight back. And so they got the cows got the nickname devilfish. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. yeah. So, yeah, like, yeah. so a tiger mom. And so, yeah, they would yeah. fiercely, fiercely defend their calf. And then typically gray whale calves will inherit their mother's feeding grounds. Like, as Chris mentioned, they'll stick with them uh, to migrate uh, at least a year after becoming independent or so, um, mm-hmm. even though they're not uh, uh, nursing or anything. And then this is really important when you think about uh, gray whale populations and their numbers and how they have been decreasing, as Chris talked about, this massive die-off, is mm-hmm. that in gray whales, their um, sexual maturity happens anywhere between 5 and 11 years old, but on average, 8 years. So those mm-hmm. those calves have to survive into adulthood, which Chris talked about is tough with orcas and things like that. Uh, and then even once they do survive, they're not going to produce ca- a calf. And they basically produce a calf every other year if they're lucky um until they're eight years old 
So yeah. it's a very slow generation interval, and it's another big reason to really pay attention to our gray whale populations. Yeah, it's one I definitely want, want to watch. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, they are, they did come back. They had this wonderful conservation success story, and now they're crashing again. But they're still least concerned by IUCN. Again, that that Western Pacific population is considered critically endangered for what's there. But, uh, you know, the the Eastern Pacific, where these gray whales migrate up to Alaska and back, you know, are in trouble. So I think we need to watch them the next few years and maybe follow up on the on them and maybe a, you know a couple of years and see where they're at and then also try to try to get a whale researcher on to to talk about them. I, I would love to to chat with somebody. Oh my gosh, Chris, you you and I have been doing yeah. this for so long, buddy. Yeah, you took yeah. you totally took the words out of my mouth. I'm like, yeah. we have to get somebody here again because. Uh, and maybe somebody from NOAA, uh, that's mm-hmm. the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They're actually who I want to give a big shout out to this week. They do a lot of research on gray whales and a lot of conservation. So check out www.fisheries.noaanoaa.gov. Uh, you can search gray whales and you'll find out that the NOAA's fisheries works to conserve gray whales through collaborative management, integrated science partnership, and outreach. So the scientists on their team use tons of different ways to actually study uh, study their numbers and figure out what's happening with whale distress and tanglement and stranding issues. So they do they really do a lot. Um, they, with their science, they measure stock assessments, noise response, satellite tagging, photo identification. I kind of want to work for them as I'm reading through everything that they do for mm-hmm. these gray whales. So we should get somebody on here who is uh, out there on the boats doing the hard work uh, and, and letting us know what the science is showing uh, of what's happening with these gray whales. I learned a lot. I, I did. When, when you said gray whales, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, we'll do them. And then I started reading about it. I'm like, oh my goodness, this was- Or watching videos. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah they're just the, you know, all of our whale species, uh, they're just, they're just fascinating creatures and you know, again, Plastic Free July, hopefully um, everybody's, you know, taking everything to heart to, to help conserve these these creatures, reduce our plastic consumption. Uh, for us at All Creatures Podcast, we hope you're enjoying the interviews. We are getting pitched interviews left, right, and center. And we've got another big species that I cannot wait. I'm itching to cover. I told Angie, if, if I got to you better bring it. You've been, you've been bothering me about this one for, I don't know, a few months now. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But no, it'll be, we'll it'll be fun. It. And yes, yeah. I have to big, give a big plug too to Shark Fest on National Geographic mm-hmm. for the whole month of July. They're pro- providing a ton of shark themed programming that includes really cool behavior and shark science and conservation stuff. I recently interviewed uh, Dr. Papastamatui from the Florida International University about his shark research. And he's featured on uh, When Sharks Attack 360, which is just, uh, well, it's really informative and helps do a lot of uh, shark myth busting. Busting, yeah. And and then I um, also recently interviewed Gibbs Kuguru, who is a shark scientist as well that's featured uh, on Shark Fest through National Geographic. So check out my interviews. Uh, episode 342 is Gibbs, and I think it must be 340 40. is Dr. Papastamatui. So 
Yeah. Uh, yeah yes. Check those out. And also tune in Nat Geo to watch this uh, this footage because they do a lot of great yeah. work for sharks and shark conservation and helping people not fear the oceans and understand how important sharks are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we learned so much from those researchers and it's like you, they, they take us on the journeys with them and, and we get to see where conservation is with with those species. So thank you for listening and, you know, stay tuned. We're going to keep coming fast and furious this month in July, uh, celebrating our oceans. Thank you, Angie, and, and great job today. All right. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.